0: Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Handle Media Project. The motto of this show is no talking points, no press releases, and no boring conversations. And today, <laughs> I, I'm joined here by Maria Castro from Phoenix, Arizona. Is that correct? Yep. Great. And I already see you came prepared with your Dump Trump shirt, I'm assuming?
1: Yeah. Yep. It's my okay. Dump Trump.
0: There you go. I, I need one of those.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so in so, action. <laughs> uh, you know,
0: I, I, I just protested Donald Trump here in Patchogue. You know, um, if I can, you know, take a road trip out to Phoenix, Arizona, maybe I will. Um, nice. But, um, okay, so just, just like I start out on my interviews, um, you know, Maria, you know, please, uh, I'd like you to introduce yourself and just tell me, who, who is Maria Castro? What do you want people to know about you? Well,
1: uh, Well, again, my name is Maria Castro. I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, still living and organizing here. Um, I've been involved in social justice movements for about six years now um, and it has literally become my life. Um, I left school because I saw that the education system is whitewashed, it's it's not for us, it wasn't made by us and so I didn't see how um, the master's rules were gonna help us take down the master's house mm-hmm. and so I needed I needed another way of, of learning and educating myself um, because my diploma wasn't going to stop deportations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after my freshman year of college, I left. And so ever since then, I, I continued to uh, do advocacy work. And uh, I do it all the time. I've been through different cycles in organizing. Um, I've been the organizer, logistics, mostly logistics I like to be in the background um I've done comms I have done um direct action trainings I've been a trainer um observer legal support whatever you name it I've tried to dabble in it so cool yeah
0: awesome um so at what point does one say and and decide you know I just can't do this education system anymore I'm, I'm about to like just split at what point does that happen
1: you know, I think it was because I saw firsthand the pain and suffering of people who are in detention. Um, a lot of 2013 for me was going to detention centers. There was so many deportation cases, and at the beginning of 2013 was when migrant, like the migrant youth, started to talk about parents, right, and like um, talk about our communities as a whole and not just dreamers. Um, I myself am not a dreamer. Um, but my mom is undocumented. And so for me, talking about parents just made sense specifically because of my mom. Um, and uh, at one point, I was arrested in, in front of Immigration Customs Enforcement Processing Center in downtown Phoenix. Um, and a lot of people were like, oh, how is it getting arrested? And it's, it's really like not the arrest, but like seeing the people inside um, and how broken down they are. How ashamed they are of themselves and their existence and like their actions and like people shouldn't you know like we are displaced and we are we are forced to move we are forced to be here um I mean first of all we were pushed out of our own land you know and so it's it's hard it's it was difficult to see like how such powerful warriors like are so broken down and I just couldn't go on with life.
0: Wow um yeah, I, I, I read that, you know, I read that you had gotten arrested along with some of your colleagues, and I thought to myself, so she is she is U.S. born, she's from a mixed status family, and she still goes and gets arrested in front of the vice. That is badass, and I admire that. Um, so can can you can you talk to me about what you actually saw inside the detention center? You know, I, I know you're you're saying you know people are broken down and you see, but but if if you could paint a picture for people who are watching, you know, I I think you know we read a lot about detention centers, but we don't really get, you know, we we don't really visually see.
1: Yeah, um, for me it was a little different because we were t- we were treated a lot differently mm-hmm. than the people in detention were, and. We weren't put in a holding cell. Um, We were just processed outside. Um, And the people were in ice boxes, was what they call them, because they're so freezing cold. Um, And there was a small room, probably filled to three times the capacity that it should have been, Um, full of brown faces, mothers, fathers, children, you know, human beings and everyone was like huddled up because it was so cold in there and like they get like one blanket for like every five people and like they have to share and it's just becomes like this like eerie feeling of I don't know like it's it it doesn't feel real and it doesn't feel right like mm. And everything is like bland. There's no color. There's no sun. Like you can't tell if it's night or day in that area. Like it's, yeah, it's very dehumanizing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I can just just you describing that it just makes me think like, yeah, it's it's a it's a scary thing that we are not aware of or that we a lot you know even if you are in immigration immigrant rights you know you don't really know uh, I guess unless like you actually go inside mm-hmm. a detention center. Um, so let's back up a little bit can you talk to me about growing up in Arizona you know I'm from New York um, so I have no idea what it's like <laughs> in Arizona so I'd love for you to paint that picture for me
1: um, well growing up I, I've i always been a very studious child I consider myself a lifelong learner um, but I think the moment well, I guess like the first moment I realized that there was some discrepancies um, in our state um, is I was I think one of the last generations to speak Spanish in class mm. um, and so I remember in, in kindred in first grade I would speak Spanish in class like my mom would be able to come in we'd have pinatas at school like it was very different environment I felt like I was learning at a different pace and then all of a sudden um, after 9-11 Uh, there all of a sudden there is like all these proposals like you need an ID to register your kids to school you need um, to make sure that like no teachers are talking in Spanish because there could be terrorists Mm -hmm. in these classrooms and so um, there is a culture shift um, and I, I think like the next moment for me was around the, when the census burner bills were happening uh one of the largest marches was held in arizona around that time in 2006 and 7. Um, because like we are so close to the border and we have such a high migrant population that is like literally moving all of the mechanics of the state economy and this the functionality of the state um it was very scary um and i remember the march passed by our church and we were handing out water bottles And I think I was like in sixth grade at that time. Uh, And later that year, my mom was deported. Um, When she was trying to come back, she had gone to Mexico to take care of her sister who was fighting cancer. Um, And when she tried to come back, they're like, oh no, this is a fake visa, you have to go back. And they like threw it in her face. And like, um, she had multiple attempts of trying to come back the right way, but there was no way. Um, I had my little sister at the time who was in kindergarten Um, who really missed our mom and you know and even though we had the privilege of being able to go and visit her on the weekends I think it was good but it also was very difficult because every weekend was like another separation like four-hour drive home with my little sister crying asking why my mom can't come home with us Um, and so I think like that is what really shook my epicenter Um, and like molded me Um, and then like fast forward to like two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, I was a freshman in high school, and I remember like on our flip phone still, like we had a we had a text chain of like ninety people, like everyone had like a list of people who you would text because our bio was raiding like a block down from my house, you know. So I'd call up my neighbors and say, "Hey, don't leave your homes. Hey, there's a tank rolling around that says war on drugs, but really it's a war on people." Mm. Um, and so there was constantly sheriffs all over the place posting up and make, like putting checkpoints up mm-hmm. to search for drugs. But really what he was searching was for people. And so I, I've always told people whenever it comes to like organizing in other states and versus Arizona that I always feel like things are moving in slow motion for me. Okay. In other states like, oh you guys have a week to plan an action <laughs> Right. Um, I mean even today, right? So like they're for the past three months we've been battling six anti immigrant pieces of legislation. Um and then they're like we had talked to some people like, oh no, this bill is dead, and then this morning it's like right now it's moving, you know, and like right after right after this I'm gonna run and try to figure out what we're gonna go do. Like we have hours between like actions try to figure out how we're going to best protect your communities and they always catch us off guard because in Arizona it's like you're in a boxing match and you're constantly being jabbed and you don't have like even a moment to think and say this is how I'm going to counter this is how I'm going to block it's just trying to defend yourself as fast and as efficiently as possible but yeah in a glimpse that is Arizona
0: (laughs) so so, um, you know I, I think that that is the definition of when people say our communities are under attack you know, and and when when you say you know that you know everybody else has like a week or two or a month to like throw something together, time is a valuable commodity, you know. And then you know here you are, you know, and you're you're just ready to go back out there with like new anti-immigrant legislation coming out, and like you know it's it's a constant thing. So I I think that's something very helpful to know um of about what it's like organizing um you know in a state like Arizona um question what is your favorite subject in school
1: um math i math. love math yeah what, what i it? yeah i love
0: it <laughs> what what is it about math because i am awful at math i i tried to go into pre med and i couldn't do it because i suck at math so what what is it about math that you love
1: math is the universal language hmm. um but it also puts every it like it is in everything that you do. It is in our DNA. It is in the music. Like music is math, and I love music. And so, to like be able to to understand the like the melodies in it on a different level. Um, I at one point was trying to take more math because I wanted to get into a really good university, and I forced my school to. Provide accelerated math classes for us, and I ended up having my school pay for my Calc two and three, and so a week before I graduated high school, I had finished my calculus three mm. um, wow. course, and so really, I mean, I think at that point it was just like, to prove a point that I could do it, mm. um, but I feel like math is usually like underrated, underappreciated. Um, because it connects us all, Um, I mean, even if you, like, study history and think about, like, how the Mayans um, collaborated with people from Africa through the Phoenicians who had this, like, global trade system back in, like, eons ago, you know? We were trading pi, like, the number pi, so that the Mayans could have it, you know, and they would send us spices, we would give them math, they would give us some math, we gave them zero, and so there's yes, just, like, zero. a lot of, like... That, that, that's what I remember, <laughs> zero. Yes, yes. You know, and just, like, thinking about, like, all the different ways that we are able to count um, and decipher the world.
0: Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm always fascinated because, you know, I'm, a, myself, I'm Ecuadorian and Guatemalan, so I just think about my Guatemalan side. I'm like, I have Maya in me, and that's pretty cool. We invented zero.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, uh, and we gave zero to to people in Africa, you know, like, that's why they started making their pyramids with the square base, you know, like it's because of us, because like, because before they used to in triangle bases or circular, but we gave them the, the, the square base for the pyramids also.
0: Sometime can, can you please make a video teaching math? Because I feel like I would like to learn (laughs) math this way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean,
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's
0: Um, so, so uh, talk to me about music. You know, you say, you know, math is connected to music. Um, what, what type of music do you use to, for inspiration or, you know, what, what, how does it um, inspire your life?
1: Um, for me, music is a part of life. I think that oftentimes we forget that it is, especially in movements, um, because it brings up our emotions like, some people show up to rally, some people are sad or hyped or angry, and with music, it just, like, brings everyone to the same level, you know, um, and it, like, centers our energy, um, and it it really, like, ties messaging together, like, there's, like, a lot of, like, very practical uses for it, but then there's also, like, very human and emotional reasons to have it. Um And I, I think for me also like music is similar to math, you know, like well, music is math, but (laughs) in its functionality, Mm -hmm. um, that it also connects us, you know, like wherever you travel in the world, like if it's a good beat, like people move to it, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and it, it just like, it's transcending like hate and like brings love and it's very hippie. (laughs)
0: <laughs> if, you, if you had uh, to choose three albums or three songs that you would recommend for people to listen to what what would they be
1: <sighs> only oh, three <laughs> I would recommend that people listen to um, The International it's Widely known as a socialist song, Mm -hmm. the socialist anthem. So the international. A lot of I I remember a couple of months ago, my one of my friends was playing a video game. They were like, it was a shooting game. I don't play video games. I don't know what they were playing. It was like some shooting game, and they're fighting against Russia. And I was like humming the melody to that song, and they're like, "How do you know that song?" And I was like, "It's the international." Mm. And they're like, But that's the enemy song, right, <laughs> and so just thinking about how like the Red Scare happened in the United States and like how like communism and socialism have been like widely um stigmatized um and it's like very infamous, but if you actually listen to the international um it it talks about like working people coming together for liberation,
0: mm. you know
1: like that's basically what the whole song says but it's like very beautiful i think a lot of people need to hear that song um so one so it's destigmatized and another so that they can the beautiful lyrics Mm -hmm. um right now i'm on i'm i'm still high on lemonade so everybody needs to watch Uh, the video (laughs) (laughs) um and then uh the other one that, like, really inspires me when I just, when I'm away from home is uh, Los Caminos de la Vida. Okay. By
0: who?
1: Oh, I can't think of them. I can, I can All send right. you a I'll, Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll research.
1: <laughs> but Los Caminos de la Vida talks about how, well, for me, it's very special because it talks about how I'm fighting for my mother. Um, and I, I'm, it's like praying to God. um. That god gives me enough time so that i can give my mother what she deserves because she's been fighting all her life and she mm. deserves to be like the queen that she is cool. um so yeah Los Caminos de la Vida.
0: great um well on my end um you can't see right there but there's the kanye west album the college dropout uh nice that's, that's like my one of my biggest inspirations in life and i i love to listen to it you know when, when you say you know, it brings everybody on the same level. That's what that album does for me. Um, mm-hmm. It makes me think about <clears throat> that there are so many people just trying to achieve their dreams and just trying to find the means to make it. Um, so that's my uh, recommendation. Um, okay. Yeah, so, um, okay. Um, I, I do want to ask you about, you know, um, you said now that you're, your mother's mother had cancer, right? And my mother's sister. Mother's sister, um, what what was that like? I mean, you know, so I recently um, my grandfather passed away, um, and my mom immediately got on the plane, went you know went to go over there um, to Ecuador. But what you know that was obviously easy for her. What what was that like watching that unfold in, in front of
1: Um, I think it was really difficult for us. My mother has always been the head of the family. Um, she lost her father when she was 11. And at that point she took on the role as like the next provider. Um, she put all of her siblings through either like technicians courses or school or something. Um, and she also raised one of her nieces as her daughter, put her through school, um, and so for her, being over here in the United States was like something like, oh, yes, our family's progressing. But it's all it was also like, what, to some degree, like you left us? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think wasn't a bad decision on her part because, you know, she needed to live her life. And I don't think she would have been able to live her own life if she was still over there. Because mm-hmm. um, she's just that kind of person who takes care of everyone. Right. Um, and so that year, I had... Been in the hospital for a couple weeks because I was hemorrhaging um, and I was very weak. I couldn't even feed myself. And it was around that same time when I was recovering that she, my mom had gotten the call that um, her sister had cancer. And if you ever see a picture of me and my mom, we look like a, like a replica of her. Okay. But if you see a picture of my mom and, my sis- and her sister, you can't tell them apart. Okay. <laughs> And so, I remember, like, whenever they would call each other, like, it was, like, the house would, like, light up in laughter, yeah. and it was always, like, great news, and so when I heard that she had called her and I was sick, I was, like, oh, this is going to be great, you know? Yeah. And to, like, see my mom crying on the phone, I was, I was really taken aback. I didn't understand what was going on. I was, like, when she calls you, you laugh. Like, I don't understand why you're crying, like, like what happened. And she told me, and so she talked to me. My mom and I have always had a very beautiful relationship. and She talked to me about it, and she was like, I need to go. And we were trying to figure out what we were going to do, and I was in school, and we made the decision that she was going to take my little sister, and I'd stay here with my father. Um, But as soon as winter break came, I left with her, and then I came back, brought back my little sister that January. Um... And it was interesting to see my mom, like, in her natural habitat. I thought I knew what she looked like in her natural habitat, but it wasn't until I saw her in the island. Uh, She's from Escalpitan, it's la cuna de dioses. It's where um, the Aztecs started to go look for the eagle and snake that later became the capital of Mexico. This is the birthplace of gods. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, it was... It was really difficult to, like, see her, but then also very inspiring. Like, I don't, it was just, like, this, like, very interesting mix.
0: Yeah. So she, would you just say that, you know, once she was in her natural habits, as you would say, she was a lot, like, happier, a lot more lit up, a lot more, like, alive?
1: She was fierce. That's it was. She was so fierce. Like, I mean, I knew she was badass, but, like, how like she just like emanating power right. like if she was with the doctors like she laid it down if she was at the courthouse she was laying it down she yeah. was like i haven't been here in 20 years but watch me tell you what to do right. <laughs> um, it's funny. also just yeah, like being in those difficult times you know like yeah. being able to say this is hard but we're gonna get through this together
0: yeah no, and and you know that that just reminds me of my girlfriend's mom. She um when she's about to go to El Salvador, she starts lighting up and she's so happy and like so <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah. Okay, I, I'd love to get into um a little some, some organizing talk now. Um, you know I'd love to hear about what's uh what's your favorite part about organizing, you know? I, I know this is a very personal, you know, just like it is for, you know, everyone who's involved in this, you know, it's a very personal struggle to organize for immigrant rights. Um, what, what is it that drives you, that, that really pushes you to, I guess like for the past, you said six years that you've been doing this type of work um, to still get up in the morning and still fight as hard as you can?
1: Um, seeing people released from detention, And seeing our communities that are most affected leading the struggle. Mm -hmm. Like if I, like I mentioned earlier, I'd rather do logistics than anything, right? Because I feel that my job as a person with access to some privilege based on my abilities, based on my status, based on whatever other access I have, like my responsibility is to remove obstacles, Mm -hmm. you know, so that they can lead the struggle so that they can be as free as they want in the in the in the ways that they like and so whenever like we're organizing and i see parents take the mic and just like lead the march lead the chant lead the press conference like whatever it is that we're doing like that is what fuels my spirit like whenever we get someone out of detention like it is both a sigh of relief and also like a moment of like awakening for me mm-hmm. to say okay this is just one person out of the thousand that are going to be deported today, you know. And so those those two things are like what will keep me going. And, and knowing that there's people behind bars, you know, like as mad as we get. and Like even right now, I was reflecting, I was journaling a little bit earlier, thinking about like, you know, like we were talking about talking points about this new bill that's probably going to pass in the next couple hours, if not tomorrow morning thinking about, like, the talking points. And I'm like, who gives a shit how much money it's going to cost? Like, these are people's lives, yeah. you know? Like, so, yeah, that's what keeps me
0: going. Um, can, can you describe to me that moment of, you know, seeing someone released out of detention? You know, I, I you read about it. It's a line in an article. But can you describe to me what that moment is? What is the look on that person's face? What do they say afterwards?
1: I think for me is is the look in their eyes when they hug their families. Mm. Yeah, it's priceless. Mm. I can't even describe, like, like, them hugging their kids again, their moms, their their, their, their spouses, like, yeah, just, you have to see it.
0: <laughs> yeah, one day, one day. Um, can, can you talk to me about some of the challenges that you think, um, now, now for me and and from my perspective, and you know, this is me organizing in New York, you know, a completely separate, you know, place from Arizona in the context of the national immigration movement. Um, what do you, do you think the movement has hit a wall? And if so, what do you think are the biggest challenges that we face as a movement going forward?
1: I think there's a couple, um, I think we have failed at providing an accurate analysis of power. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we don't have enough political education to get to that analysis of power. Um, because what I've realized, and like I've also like been in the space where I don't understand this, right? And people have told me, and I just, I just didn't get it, and it took me a while. You know, of a lot of reading, a lot of research to try to figure out like what it is that we needed. Um, and once we have an analysis of power, um, we can determine on how to use our power, right? And we it's obvious that our electoral power isn't going to take us anywhere because we can't get our shit straight. And there's too much money that we don't have control over that's being maneuvered. Um, but I think our consumer and labor power um, hasn't been harnessed. And in the most effective ways um, in the past 10 years. And so I think if we can flex that muscle that we have, I think we'll we'll be able to shift something. And then that will also allow us to identify with larger masses. I think another one of the larger issues is identity versus identification. I think we have used identity as something that allows us to break free from oppression, but at the same time, I think on the national level, it has divided us. Because even though we identify differently, that does not mean we have to heal separately. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what that a lot of that is what's happening. You know, like I identify as such and such, I'm going to heal on this side. I identify as such and such, I'm ind- I am going to heal on this side, and it is okay. Like, I think it is beautiful that we recognize and honor the struggles of our different identities, but it is important that we heal together so that we can honor those struggles and so that we have a deeper understanding and more careful analysis of what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that provides, that that is different, that makes it identification. So identification allows me to honor your struggle. It allows me to provide you with the resources so that you can get to the level that we are at. Mm. right but identity is dividing us Mm. because like well i am i am this and this and so i you don't understand me Mm. right and i think that that is something that's huge because like there's dreamers right but i'm not a dreamer quote unquote right because i'm i'm a citizen and then there's also the dreamers who have adjusted status right so that's a new group of folks and well you're, you're not undocumented anymore so you don't understand the struggle and it's I think there's a lot of like that dynamic and so I think we need to bridge that like yes you you have your identity we want to honor that let it let us heal together Mm -hmm. so that I am able to hold you in your pain Mm -hmm. to provide you with the support because I have not suffered in the ways that you have suffered not seeing that one pain is more more than the other Mm -hmm. but how do I help you in my experience just to hold you and hold that space for you not in a separate space, but right. in the same space.
0: That's that's very interesting. I, I have never thought of it that way. Um, and now I'm, I'm going to ask you like a very like long question. Where where does that start? You know, because, you know, there are tons of conferences. There are tons of, you know, different uh, spaces. But like, where does that even start? You know, and, and where, you know, at, at least like, from my perspective, you know, the reason why I wanted to start this show is so, sort of what you're talking about. You know, is, I wanted to get to know people and, and just just get to know who they are as people, you know, like, not, 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 without really knowing anything about them. Um, so I think what you're saying is very true. And, you know, I, I definitely understand it. Um, in real life, where does that begin?
1: You know, I think it's important. I think the role of the national networks is to provide the resources of political education so that people can begin to have these conversations. Mm. I think, you know, and I've been to a lot of these convenings and I've put together a lot of these convenings, you know. Um, And so hindsight is like looking through your glasses, but when they're not smudged, it's not 2020 because we don't have the vision, but (laughs) it's more clear. Um, And so I think that Like I said, the national role is so that they can provide resources and tools Mm -hmm. um, for folks on the ground to do it themselves um, Mm -hmm. so that they have that experience. I think maybe the national network can model it um, in smaller, more intimate convenings, because I think this is very, this is a challenging conversation to have, you know, Mm -hmm. saying that the way that we have been healing, it may not have been the best way to heal. Mm -hmm. Um, Or some places, don't, some people don't even heal. You know, like don't have that space. So like providing those spaces um, in intimate settings, maybe in groups no larger than 30. Um, and then so that folks have those tools to bring it back home so that they can say, hey, you are the people I organize with day in and day out. I want to heal with you. I want to work with you. But how am I going to trust you, right, if I don't know you? I can't trust you to do logistics because I'm going to be calling you every five minutes because I have no idea who you are. I don't know your story. I have no relationship with you, no actual care, like caring, tangible relationship that is going to help propel us forward together where I can tell you, hey, you take this role and I trust you because I know the type of person that you are. I understand your weaknesses. I have done what I can to help you in those weaknesses. Now, how are we going to to move forward together? Mm-hmm. You know, because I trust you, I know you. And, the, like, that's why there's no trust in national networks, because, like, we, ne- we don't network at networks. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we, like, we just don't know each other. It's like, hey, how you been? And you're on Facebook. But, like, we don't actually know each other.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I have worked at the national level, and I will tell you, like, no. <laughs> exactly, like, what you're saying. Like, just, it's It's disappointing it's it's disappointing like and it is i feel like the more responsibility and the more visibility you have i mean the more visibility you have and the more funding you get you know it's not only about achieving your quarterly fundraising goal or whatever like you have to like if you're taking on that role like you have like the responsibility lies on you also to take care of who you're like organizing, who you're asking to be a part mm-hmm. of the movement. And my biggest fear is always bringing new people into the movement and then just like having them like walk into a world that is like dominated by like funding, dominated by like bureaucracy. Well, yeah. And
1: the reason it's it's dominated by funding is because our definition of sustainability is different, mm-hmm. right? Like here on the ground for a lot of, folks on the ground but, and I have, I've had a lot of different relationships with folks in the southwest like their sustainability means people their sustainability means relationships networks resources that is their sustainability right, right. but and for the national networks I feel that a lot of the time sustainability has equated to money mm. yes I understand money needs to pay people salaries we need money to like fly people to different events. But sustainable like there should be two versions of sustainability, right? There's mm-hmm. financial sustainability for the organization, like and it's in like mechanics, but then also as an organization, the people you know, need a, a strategy for sustainability. And that means actually developing people, mm-hmm. helping them through their struggles, through their like through whatever difficulties they're facing, both nice. on the ground and as people, because that's what people need so much self care. You know, like, there's this, like, this thing, like, where everyone needs (laughs) self-care. But if you and I are working together, and once a week, my check-in is about work with you, and then the other time that we, and you and I check-in is, like, how are you doing? Like, have you finished your homework for this week? You know? How many team projects are you working on? Are you sick? How's your mom? You know? Are things okay back home? You know? If I understand what struggles you're going through, I will understand the best way to support you and like there's no need for you to lie to me, you know, like cuz there's people who like overcommit and underdeliver and they do that because they don't have the confidence or or the trust to confide in, in their fellow organizers to say, "Hey, like I actually can't do this without feeling judged, without feeling pressured." And I don't have to do self-care for doing collective care. Yeah. If we are collectively caring for each other, um, then there's
0: no need for self-care. Yeah. No, and and you're totally right, and I totally appreciate you uh, saying all that because in every interview I try to make it a point to talk about that, just to highlight how much that is needed. You know, and and like you're saying, everybody, everybody, everybody who's an activist needs self-care, and that just shows that like there is something lacking, there's something missing, there's something hollow, um, that you know needs something needs to happen about it. Um, okay, so uh, you know we're we're nearing the end of the interview. Um, so I want to ask you two things. Um, talk to me about translating "Lemonade" for your mom.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, it was difficult because Beyonce sings and raps really fast, <laughs> so I had to keep pausing. I didn't do the whole thing, but I did a lot. Like I would skip to like the different yeah. ones that I wanted like hold up i needed to like translate that one like every all the from the beginning to hold up i translated the whole thing okay and then um it was really interesting because i i saw that latina magazine like gave beyonce the honorary latina thing yes and it was upsetting for me that was like my initial reaction and then i took a step back and i was thinking about the conversation with my mom and it's women of i mean and I don't want to like take away right from like this being like black girl magic, hundred percent all the way. Mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting to see how pain is reflected similarly in the Latina community. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so my mom was able to, I, to see herself, to see her struggles, the struggles of her family reflected in that video. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it also took so long because, like, I would translate something and I was like, oh, yeah, and so-and-so, <laughs> yeah. you know, or she's like, or I remember when this happened. Um, and so it was it was really great. I think it was beautiful. It was vulnerable. It was real. And I love the fact that there were so many people collaborating on the piece, so many powerful women. Um, yeah. And it was I mean, it was fun. And then uh, my mom baby said The babies got here, so we had to stop. But <laughs> it was great.
0: Cool. I mean, that, that's great. It, it sounds it sounds beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with with me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then uh, I guess like last thing. Um, you know, given like where you are in Arizona, and like you know, you're constantly on the move, constantly having to um, pop up for actions. What would you say to the people? the haters who are trying to stop immigration reform? Like if you could say something to them right now, what would you say to them?
1: Usually I'm chanting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, well, recently, like we had a conversation um, with folks um, when we we stopped traffic to the Trump rally. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who are very hostile there are some people who were like trying to figure out what was going on, um, and most of the time, I when like I see someone who's like actually like trying to have a conversation, yeah, I'll I'll do more asking questions than anything. Like I'll ask them why it is that they support, and I ask them if it's okay, um, to hurt other people, and they're like no, and then I ask them how many if they know how many people died um during the Holocaust yeah. total. And those people, they didn't have any clue. Yeah. Um, and I tell them, do you know how many undocumented people there are in the country? Some people don't know. They just say millions or billions. And you just make up a number. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take up the, the total sum of lives lost on both sides um, during the Holocaust, it's 7 million people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And There's 11 million of us mm-hmm. in this country. Like, Put that like in perspective, you know? I, I really try to do that for people, um, and you know, and say like, how many lives are going to have to be lost, you know, in order to achieve what you're what you're thinking or what you're saying? Yeah. You know, and and if people can see that, that's great. And if they don't, they're a lost cause, and I move on to the next person.
0: Mm. Wow. Um, okay, so. Remind me to never get into an argument with you because you always just use math on me and, like, I'm not good at that, so. I I will never question anything you say.
1: (laughs) Well, it's because, like, you need to put numbers into perspective. Yeah. Right? Because numbers are really easy, like, to, there's millions of undocumented people in this country and they'll, like, go off. Right. But if you put it into perspective, like, a whole war, and that was 7 million lives. We're talking about 11 million. Yeah here and that's the ones that you're trying to get rid of right you know so
0: well maria again thank you so much for this conversation i think like you have intellectually blown my mind today that I'm just going to go crawl on the couch into the fetal function because <laughs> you have blown my mind today. Uh, no, but thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, you know, again, with this show, it's uh, no talking points, press releases or boring conversations. And I think that people are going to learn a lot from this interview. And I, again, I just, I thank you so much. And please just don't use math on me. I, I just, I can't.
1: <laughs> Okay, I promise. All right, Maria. All right, well, thank you so much.